Living Hope is a church striving to become a 21st century apostolic church. We are founded upon the belief that the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God. We believe in the Great Commission, and we are endeavoring to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with love, mercy, and truth. Listen in as we share the Word, and that, through Jesus Christ, hope is alive. How many enjoy this time of year? You do? You guys see my hand is not raised. Uh, I have no problem with this time of year. It's just not my favorite. I'm more of a springish, early summer type of guy. Um, but how many looking forward to Thanksgiving? Anybody? Christmas? I always look forward to Christmas, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a good time of year. Leaves change, which means I got to get outside and rake them. But it's just all part of it. Um, but before uh, we jump into this this morning, I do want to uh, take a moment and give honor where honor is due. I do appreciate our pastor and his family, every one of his girls. Uh, Sister Valerie, pastor, we are blessed in this church. And I do want to give honor and thank pastor and brother Roberts once again for this opportunity to teach. I do not take it lightly at all, not one bit. Um, I really hope I can help someone this morning. I do have a good amount of notes, notes though, so uh, I'm just going to jump into it. And I hope and pray that this is delivered with the clarity and provokes us all to good works. So I'm glad you guys are seated because I was going to tell everyone to be seated this morning. Because I'm going to start out probably a little bit different than I usually do. Um, I'm going to hold off on our main text to lay a little bit of a of a foundation. When we do get to the main text, I'll let you guys know, and you guys can stand for the reading of the word. How many have ever heard of Aaron Ralston? Any? Anybody? You guys are looking at me like, okay, I saw one hand lifted. Um, you guys may not know the name, but you probably know the story of Aaron. While hiking in southeastern Utah, Aaron Ralston, I'm hoping I'm saying his last name right, had a life-changing incident. He fell down a ravine and had his arm lodged in a boulder or under a boulder. Story goes, he was stuck there for 127 hours. Stuck, arm trapped, can't move. How many have ever heard the story before, right? Yeah, now we got hands lifted. To survive, he had to eventually cut his own arm off so he could climb to freedom. And I thought about that when I read this. I'm like, first of all, he had to cut his arm off. And then he had to climb to freedom. So he had to climb using one arm and somehow carrying the other arm that he cut off. That's crazy to think about. It's not like he just left his arm there. Weird. Um, some of those things stick out to me when I hear a story. But um, what do you think his problem was? Anybody know what his problem was? He was stuck? Yeah, what else? A little back and forth this morning. What was his other problem? There we go. He should not have been by himself. His biggest problem was not the boulder on the arm. His biggest problem that is that he went climbing alone. No one knew where he was. Nobody knew that he was in trouble. And so today we're going to talk about how to thrive in the wild by simply staying connected to other people, staying connected with others. Now, 
Uh, before we jump into it all, I, I want to ask a question and agree with Brother Roberts on this, on this statement I'm going to make. Um, how many have ever been lost? Now, Brother Roberts said last week or, or even before, if you have gas in the tank, you're never lost, right? Right? When you're driving, exactly, when you're driving. If you have gas in the tank, you're, you're not really lost. Now, you may get a couple odd looks from your passengers, um, but on a technicality, I'll agree, Brother Roberts, you're, you're not really lost. Um, now, some of y'all, you just don't have a sense of direction. I'm not going to look at anybody in particular. I'm just going to, like, scan around the room. But some of, some of the issue is you just don't have a sense of direction. Um, and the truth is we really don't ever get lost when we're in a familiar place, when you're around familiar objects. You see that tree. How many get directions? And turn after you see three, three streets and turn to the right, right? That's how people give directions. We don't, we don't give street names anymore. We say, pass the church on the right, pass the McDonald's, and then make a left, and you're there. Um, it's different. But we don't, we don't ever get lost in a familiar place. Usually people get lost when they're somewhere they've never been before. Um, now, I have a, a, a friend, and I'm being generous in how I say friend. They got lost one time. They were traveling from point A to point B, and they have traveled this path hundreds of times. But even with their GPS on, they made a phone call to me and said, I don't know where I'm at. I'm lost. I'm like, how are you lost? You got your GPS on. The GPS tells you where to go. But they were hysterical, and they were afraid because they were in a place they had never been before. One, it was dark. Two, the GPS took them in a different direction they had never been before. But still, they were so discomforted that they felt lost. Um, I know we have some hunters in the church, but how many of you have ever been in the wild? Some people. Here we go. We got some hands raised. I'm not talking about hunting like on lands that you know. I'm talking about you step into a, a territory, you have no clue the different surroundings and whatnot, and you, and you, you travel, right? It's, it's, it's a cool thing. Has anybody ever been in the rainforest? No. I would never step foot in the rainforest by myself. Too many things that could hurt me. Um, how many have ever been to Africa? Anybody? Amen. Have you been in the desert or yeah, safari? Something like that. I'm not talking about the zoo. I'm talking about like real deal. You've been in the wilderness, right? Um, how many of you have ever really been on like a week-long adventure, like hiking, got a backpack, you travel? I want to do that one day. That is something I, I do want to try. Um, but as I began to think about this concept of, of the wilderness, the wild, it got me thinking, well, what is the wild spiritually? What, is, what does that look like? And my mind immediately tried to fill in some answers, but <clears throat> the first thing I'd say is, I classify it as the culture we live in, right? We live in a wild culture. If you don't think we're living in a wild culture, you're probably living under a rock. You're probably just like putting your head in the sand like an ostrich and just not paying attention to what's going on. But we got COVID-19 happening in our world. We're in an election year. Schools are opening and closing. It's, it seems wild. It seems crazy. 
We got jobs that are open one day and now closed the next day. Quarantine. How many has ever been quarantined during this COVID cycle, right? Who would have thought? We got travel restrictions. You can't go where you want to go. You can't fly where you want to fly. Um, 2020 has been a wild year. It feels like a wilderness, especially when you compare it to like previous years. And I've not even touched on, when I think about a wilderness, I think about a while, I haven't even touched on what it just looks like living in the U.S. of A. We have a lot of freedoms living in the U.S. I'm thankful I live in a society where I can worship Jesus freely and, and we can preach the word of God. Amen. Anybody thankful for that? Amen. Right? I am. <clears throat> but how many know there are a lot of other countries where you, where we, you just can't do that? Those freedoms don't exist. And I could admit that I could and should probably do better to reverence the fact that I can come into this church, lift my hands, and open my mouth and declare that Jesus is Lord. Because there may come a day where we don't have that freedom anymore. There may come a day we don't have that luxury. And so as we talk about the wilderness, as we talk about the wild, and the freedoms we have in the United States, understand we're also talking about with those same freedoms, we live in a nation where it's moving further and further away from the Lord. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can worship whatever God you want to worship. And in these last days, our culture seems to get wilder and wilder with each passing year. Sometimes as the 21st century church, we can feel like we're the first people to ever go through this. We're the first people to ever experience COVID-19, Right? We're the, first, we're the first generation to ever have this worldwide impact that is felt. But that's simply not true. You can look back in history. We're not the first people to ever live for God in a wild culture. We're just, we're just not. There have been pandemics before. Maybe not to this extreme case. But if the Lord tarries a little bit longer, there will probably be pandemics again. And I can only speak for my generation, but during world wars... I'm pretty sure it was wild. It must have been a, a crazy experience to, to not know what's going to happen. I know 9-11 was like a small little kind of impact of what war is like in our country. But it must have been a wild and difficult time to live for Christ during the world wars. The apostles, the Bible even tells us, during their time, it was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself and Moses were born into a world where the government was actively trying to kill them. If that's not wild, I don't know what, I don't know what wild is. Moses' children are being thrown into the Nile River left and right, three and under, males. Jesus, the same thing. King Herod made a decree to destroy, kill all the babies. But we yet see God still moved. Noah lived in a time so wild that God decided to cleanse the earth. Think about that for a second. And so with that foundation laid of what wilderness kind of a wilderness looks like, now we're going to get to our text. If you want to stand for the reading of the word, you may. We're going to read from Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia 
and placed them in the treasure house of his God. In verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. He said, select only strong, healthy, and good young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning. They're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. And verse 7 says, the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. And you may be seated this morning. So when we think about what a wilderness is, a good example of one is taking place here in Daniel chapter 1. And the Bible tells us about four people who had an awkward first day. How many of you have ever stepped onto a new job and it's been awkward? You don't know who to talk to. You don't know who to mingle with. It feels wild. It feels like you don't know what to do and you kind of got to navigate your own way. This is the scenario that these four young men were now brought into. The very first day that they show up on the scene in Babylon, they are hit with this command or so to speak from the, the uh, chief of staff of this king. And understand they were in a foreign land living in a new environment because the Babylonians had conquered their city in early 600 BC. Now on a side note, it's interesting to me in this story that the Bible says God allowed this to happen. I know we look at a year like 2020 and COVID-19 and we say, God, how could you allow this to happen? But understand, God has a purpose in it all. Amen? God allows these things to happen so that his purpose can be fulfilled in the same way that he did for Daniel and his three friends. But understand, when we talk about a wilderness, Babylon was very different from Jerusalem where they had grown up. Now they were immediately bombarded on their first day with different music, different customs, and now they were immediately commanded to study different things that they had never studied before. Instead of learning about the law of Moses, instead of learning Deuteronomy 6.4, here, O Lord, here, Lord our God is one. I'm sorry, I butchered that right there. Deuteronomy 6.4, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That is the correct verse. Instead of having to study that, now they're having to study the laws of Babylon. Instead of learning about one God, now they're having to learn about many gods. And they were undoubtedly taught about human sacrifice and sensuality. They were bombarded on their very first day in this new land with all this going on. How many know this is much like what we have to deal with today? Our world is increasingly getting wilder and wilder, and we begin to be exposed to a whole bunch of different ideas that are not consistent with Christian principles that we find in the Bible. And if we're not careful, after simply being exposed to these ideas, 
over time, we can begin to tolerate them. And then after tolerating them, we start accepting them. And then after accepting them, we start embracing them and even doing the very things that the Bible tells us we shouldn't do. And so the first part of this this story I think we can learn from is that understand the enemy has a plan. The enemy has a plan for you and a plan for me. We don't like that plan, but the enemy is seeking to destroy us. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Somebody say a lion. Not just a lion, though, a roaring lion. And we're going to come back to that point later. But we must become aware that the enemy has an end game. It's not like the Avengers. It's not like we get all these different scenarios and we can snap our fingers and go back in time and fix it. The enemy has an end game for you and for me. He's not playing games. He's deliberately seeking you and my downfall. So the Bible tells us we must be alert and not deceived by his plan nor his tactics. And so in this story, I want to bring awareness to a three-step plan by the enemy that we can learn from. And the first step is this. The enemy wants to claim you. Somebody say, the enemy wants to claim you. In, the, in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1, it says, The king ordered his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Verse 4, he's very particular here. Select only the strong ones, the healthy ones, the good-looking ones. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. The king of Babylon had specific desires regarding these people of God, regarding the Hebrews. And King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to claim their lives for himself. Understand, God allowed the king to win this battle against the Hebrews. And now, here he is after winning this battle, after winning the, besiege upon, or the siege upon Jerusalem, now he's taken these young men away as captives. But better yet, what they really were was trophies. I've conquered your people. Now I've got your children. What are you going to do? That's really what the enemy was doing here. And the king was very particular about who he wanted and what he wanted to use them for. They were to remain close to him, and he wanted to keep his eye on them. And how many know if we're not careful when we're living in a wilderness, our adversary He wants to claim us for his own use. There is one thing that both God and the devil agree upon, and that is that you have value in their kingdom. You are valuable. You're valuable to the church. You're valuable to the body of Christ. The Bible declares we are fitly framed together. We need every member of the body doing its part, right? The eye can't do what the hand can do. And vice versa, we, the fingers, the pinky can't do what the thumb can do. Everybody plays their part. And sometimes when we look at this word valuable, I think we look at it with a limited understanding, with a limited viewpoint. We think about a monetary type of thing, right? This phone in my pocket is valuable. This trinket that has been passed down through my family is valuable. But it's, when we think about that word valuable, it's synonymous with words like it's in demand, It's appreciated. It's inestimable. 
You can't put a price tag on it. That's how valuable you are to the kingdom of God. You're precious. You're cherished. You're beneficial. You're, you're the prize. You're worthwhile, and the Bible calls us treasured. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and 9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So tell your neighbor you're valuable. You're worth something. Now take that bony finger of yours and point it at yourself. Tell yourself, I'm valuable. You know, a lot of times we discourage ourselves because we don't see ourselves as valuable. But God sees us differently than we see ourselves. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? You know, we can get so down on ourselves sometimes, but God sees us differently than we see ourselves. And if we're not careful, we can let our world, we can let our wilderness, we can let the adversary Start trying to make that distinction of how valuable you are to you. The world is quick to categorize you. They will claim that you are this or you are that. And as good people of God, sometimes we just roll over and let them make that declaration for us. We just roll over as they claim you are this section of people. You are that section of people. But understand, we are all children of the king. We are chosen. We are children of God Almighty. We belong to God. And as long as we cling to him, no one can take that from us. No one can take that from you. His word overwhelmingly confirms that you are his cherished treasure. Right now in the spiritual, there is a war going on. And the enemy is trying to claim you for their side. Understand you are valuable. Ephesians 2 and 4 says, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, even at our worst point, God still saw the value in us. Even when we weren't living for God, God still saw the value in us. He hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved and hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Verse 10, I like this verse. It says, for we are his workmanship. That means God has put in time to make you exactly who you are. When you create something, when you're the master creator, you put your name on it, right? Nobody else takes credit for that. God has put his name on us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So understand this morning, you are valuable. The one who claimed me is Jesus Christ. Don't let our adversary, don't let the wilderness claim you. And so the sec- second tactic of the enemy in this, in this plan of his that we see in Daniel is that the enemy wants to tame you. Not only did he claim these Hebrew young boys as his own, for his own use, The Bible shows us he tries to tame them, and the enemy wants to tame the people of God. I find it interesting, in verses 4 and 5 of Daniel chapter 1, he makes the declaration, right, select only these young men, make sure they have a good understanding, make sure they're learned and gifted in knowledge and good judgment. But it goes on to say in verse 4, and let me find it in the King James Version, it says at the very end, of whom 
or actually it says, as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace. To stand in the king's palace. In the New Living Translation, it says, he wanted these young men so that they could be suited to serve him in his own royal palace. Verse 5 says, the king tried to assign them a daily ration and food from not just a regular kitchen, but his own kitchen. That means they got to eat what the king got to eat. And then later it says, after they would be trained for three years, they were going to enter into service under this king. Isn't that something? Not only does this king, not only does this adversary want to send a message that he's taken these young men as captives, right? He's taken them as trophies of war. Now he wants to keep them close, so close that he eventually planned an outcome where they would turn around and serve him. Isn't that interesting? I read a commentary on verse 4. It says, now observe the directions with the king of Babylon gave for the choice of these young youths. They must not choose such as were deformed in body, but they had to look good, in other words. But it wasn't even stopping there. It says they had to be skillful in all wisdom and cunning, well, well seen in knowledge and understanding science. They had to be quick and sharp and could give a ready and intelligent account of their own country and what they had learned, what they had been brought up in. So Daniel and his friends, they knew what the word of God said, essentially is what I'm getting at. And the king made a deliberate attempt to choose these young men because they were pliable. They still had some learning years in them. They were teachable, in other words. And eventually the king had an idea that they would forget their own people and start incorporating with his people. The Bible tells us that he planned to feed them and train them up so that ultimately they would serve in his kingdom. Isn't that so like the enemy? He will use any method he can, right, to bring us to a place where we don't even realize that now we're doing his bidding. Now we're serving him. That's what taming is, right? How many, how many have ever seen a wild animal that has been tamed, right? We go to the zoo, we go to a circus, and we see animals that have been tamed. But let me ask you this. How do you tame an animal? Anybody? How do you tame an animal? That is something they use. Circuses use that chair. They use that three-pronged three chair to train lions, right? But as I looked into this, um, you might expect that the process of taming an animal is different depending on the animal. You can't tame a dog the same way that you tame a tiger, right? They're just, you're going to use a different method. You can't tame an elephant the same way you could tame a monkey, right? One's a lot bigger than the other, and they eat different things, right? So this is what I found, and, and this is interesting. Taming something is pretty much the process of controlling that animal's responses to such a degree where the potential and the purpose of that animal falls under the subjection of its master. I'm going to say that one more time. Taming is the process of, it's the process of controlling the animal's responses to such a degree 
where the animal's potential and the purpose that animal was designed for are now falling under whatever the master wants to do with it. It's crazy. Understand that Satan wants to diminish the God-given potential and purpose in your life so that you will never live up to your potential. If he's accomplished that, that means he has tamed you. He has put you in a place where you won't live up to where God has meant for you to live up to. He also wants to diminish the potential of the church. You know, the devil isn't bothered by us having church today. He gets concerned when church spills outside of these four walls. And now we start impacting our community and we start impacting the streets and the neighborhoods we live in. That's when the enemy starts getting concerned. The enemy and even the world understands that we are valuable, but they also see the potential we have to be used by God. And we must not let the enemy tame us. We must not let him diminish our potential. And so the third step this morning of this plan of the enemy in Daniel chapter 1 is that he not only wanted to claim them and tame them, the Bible says he also renamed them. He wanted to change their name, change their identity. Daniel was changed to Belteshazzar. Hananiah was changed to Shadrach. Mishael was changed to Meshach. And Azariah was changed to Abednego. Now, understand Hebrew names were selected with purpose. They were selected with a reason. Daniel, his name translated in Hebrew is God is my judge. And now his name is translated to Belteshazzar in this Babylonian country, which really translated to protect this lower God, protect this king, this lower God is the literal translation. That Belteshazzar, the, the, the particularity of that name was consistent with the gods that were served in Babylon. Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious, is changed to Shadrach, which is I am fearful of God. Mishael, who is what God is, is changed to Meshach, which means I am despised, I'm humiliated, I'm lowered down in the eyes of everybody else. Azariah, which is Yahweh has helped me, is changed to Abednego, which is a servant of Nabu, which is a god amongst the Babylonians. And these names reflect the way that our adversary wants to erode our focus on God's character, as we see in Hananiah, our identity as his children, which we see in Mishael, and his relationship to us. The enemy wants to change our identity so that that relationship is broken, as we see with Azariah. But even though culture tried to claim them, tame them, and name them, these young people, God had an even bigger purpose for them. God wanted to use them to change the culture that they now find themselves in. Isn't that something? You wonder why we're put in this COVID-19 environment. The reason why is because God has chose us for such a time as this. This is when the church is supposed to start thriving. This is, we're put in this scenario so that we can change the world around us, not vice versa. God would give them strength to not just survive the wilderness they were in, but God's desire was for them to actually thrive in the wilderness that they were in. They were in that place in Babylonia for a purpose. Now, when we talk about thriving in the wild, there are a lot of things that come to mind, how we can thrive. 
If I were lost in the woods, I'd probably first try to find shelter and fire. Anybody with me? Right? And sure enough, that can preach right there, right? We should always have the fire burning, right? We should have the Holy Ghost burning in us. The fire is needed in the wilderness. I'd also say we got to find food, and we can preach right there. What are you consuming in the wilderness, right? But I think another thing is we got to have a right direction. The children of God stumbled in the wilderness for 40 years, right? But still, God was leading them. Even when we're in a wilderness, if we have the right direction, we'll still be able to thrive. But the simplest way and what I want to teach on this morning to thrive in the, in the wilderness is simply you shouldn't do it by yourself. Just like the opening story with Aaron Ralston, so much could have been avoided, his arm being cut off, if he had simply had someone else there together with him. And so in Daniel chapter 1, verse 6, we find the first mention of these four Hebrew young boys. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. And it's no coincidence that when we are first introduced to these four young men, the Bible doesn't introduce one, and then later on in other verses introduce the other, and then somewhere down the line introduce the other. No, the Bible's very particular in that they are all mentioned together. They were facing a new challenge, but God did not want them to do it alone. We know that later on, each would ultimately face their own trials, but the Bible makes it plain they were in this scenario from transporting from Jerusalem as captives to Babylonia. They were in it together. On their first day in this wilderness, they stood together. This was something that was very different about them, and the enemy recognized their potential. So I have five keys for staying together that I like to talk about next. And the first key to staying together and thriving is that we must encourage one another. I don't have a deep lesson for y'all this morning. The first point is simply we must encourage one another. In Daniel 1, chapter Chapter 1 and verse 8, the story goes on to say that after this chief of staff proposes that they need to eat the king's meat, this was Daniel's response. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Understand this. The first time... Daniel opens up his mouth. He says he purposed in his heart. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. The story goes on and on and on for the next three verses until we get to verse 12. And Daniel is having a conversation with his chief of staff. In verse 12, Daniel changes his voice from I to now being we. He says, prove thy servants. I already made up my mind that I'm not going to eat the king's meat. But now, somewhere between verse 8 and verse 12, he had encouraged everyone else around him in his choice that now they decided to join him. He says, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us, not me, but now he's talking collectively, us, vegetables or pulse to eat and water to drink. Daniel made a commitment not to defile himself, and three verses later, after he's challenged the other young men around him, they are now encouraged enough to stand on their own with him. 
understand that. If you read these verses in between the two that I mentioned, nowhere does it mention there being questions or concerns raised by the other young men around him. The rest of the group, after Daniel made up his mind, they rose to the challenge and decided to join Daniel. Can you imagine how they must have felt in this time? They're in a foreign land, being commanded and ruled by a foreign king, and it was really do as I say or else. That was what they had to deal with. But Daniel decided not to defile himself or associate himself with food and wine that went against his relationship with God. Scripture doesn't tell us anything else that was spoken amongst this group of young men. But in the midst of a conversation with Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff, the rest of the group was encouraged enough with Daniel's response that they decided to join him. And understand, as a body, as a church, when we're in the wilderness, we have to and need to do and stand for what is right and what is true. And you know what? That decision to do what's right, that alone may be all it takes for someone else to feel encouraged enough to make that decision as well. Romans 15 and verse 2 says, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. The New Living Translation says it like this. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. We should encourage one another. A lot of times, you don't even have to encourage someone by your words. It's by your actions. You do something and someone else has felt encouraged to do it as well. You start praying for revival. The rest of the church joins on in its courage to pray for revival. You start praying for a miracle. You start praying for healing. The rest of the church starts getting encouraged to pray for healing. That's how it works, right? Sometimes we think it has to be complicated. I have to go over here, talk to Brother Roberts, encourage himself with some words that I have to come up with. But we don't have to make it that difficult. Literally stand for what you know, what the Bible says is true, and you'll encourage someone else to do the same. So we're talking about keys to staying together. The next one is a very simple one, and that is leave no one else behind. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest you also be tempted. We must not give up on each other. Can you imagine if God gave up on us? Can you imagine if... God gave up on us. I know for me, he's probably looking down, well, he's done it again. When's he going to learn? He should know by now. This is his fifth time making this mistake. Can you imagine if God looked at us like, like the same way we look at other people sometimes? I can't believe this person did this to me. I can't believe I'm never going to associate myself with this person because of what they've done. Let's be real this morning. No one is too far off or too low or too bound in sin for God to reach. Paul gives this long list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, liars, deceivers, adulterers, thieves, the covetous, none of these people are going to enter into the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say, and such were some of you. Such were some of us. Right? And he's right. If God could take a sinner like me and turn me around, sure enough, he can do it for someone else. So who am I to leave them behind when God has a plan and purpose for them? We need to work together to help anyone in the church who may be struggling right now. 
Yes, we need to pray for them. We should help them. But we also got to follow up on them. We're very good at praying for people, but I think we could be better at following up with people. We have to stay together because there are some enemies in the wild that will try to separate us. The enemy has a plan. We can't allow him to isolate people so that they can get caught up in his plan. I said it earlier, but every one of us is valuable in the kingdom. We need one another. We need the body. The body suffers when one of its members isn't functioning like it should be. Come on, break your finger and tell me your whole body ain't suffering, right? Get a toothache and tell me how that small tooth ain't affecting the rest of your body. It is. When one of us is being left out, the whole body is affected. We can't, we, we need everyone to stay together and we can't leave anyone behind. The next three points I want to make talk about some things as we stay together, some keys, we have to fight some things. And the first one we got to fight is unforgiveness. In order to stay together, we have to fight unforgiveness. Now, I have a news flash this morning. I'm not going to look at anybody. Nobody, not one person. I'm looking right at me, my feet. You will have problems with other people in the church. I'm say that one more time. You will have problems with other people in the church. Don't shoot the messenger. If you've been around the church at any point, you will run into somewhere rubber will meet the road and you'll have some friction with somebody. I heard a joke one time that said a man was looking for the perfect church. His friend told him wherever, whatever church he was going to go next, he may as well not even go. Why, the friend said? He said, if you step foot in that church, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> it won't be. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, Be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We must fight unforgiveness with forgiveness. We got to fight unforgiveness with forgiveness. And you know what? We don't forgive others because they deserve forgiveness. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. Because God forgave us and we didn't deserve to be forgiven, what right do we have not to forgive somebody else? My last point was that we shouldn't leave anyone behind. But you know what unforgiveness is doing? Unforgiveness is you choosing for yourself to be left behind. It's you choosing to separate yourself from the group. You choosing to separate yourself from the body. It is you allowing yourself to be disconnected when you choose not to forgive. The Bible is very clear about unforgiveness. You have no right to begin to ask God for anything if you yourself have ought with someone else. The Bible says, and I'm paraphrasing here, you need to first make it right. You have to forgive them. Then you can take your petition to the Lord. How many of you ever prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and God didn't do it? And the whole time, the light bulb goes on, oh, man, I need to make it right with this person. And then voila, God answers your prayer. Unforgiveness hinders us. The Bible says it can become a root of bitterness if we don't unforgive someone. We cannot stay connected together. We cannot be unified if we have unforgiveness in our hearts. In the long run, you're only going to hurt yourself. We must fight unforgiveness with forgiveness. Every time we ask the Lord to forgive us, we need to make sure we're also forgiving others. 
My next point this morning of keys of staying together, we got to fight division. Brother Roberts talked about division early morning and we were praying. And this is what James chapter 2 says. It says in verse 1, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 2 says, for example, Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? That's what the Bible says. If we're going to stay together in the wild, we need to fight division among us. No one should ever feel like they do not fit here among us. Many people in the world feel like they don't fit anywhere. But of all places, the church should be where they instantly should feel welcome. We got to reach for them and assure them through our actions that they will fit here. Why do you think it's easy for division to form amongst us? Why? Who are we even to make that decision? Let me ask you that question. My Bible tells me that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Rich, poor, black, white, young, old. What we need to do is stop listening to the voice of the adversary. The one that's trying to claim you and tame you and name you something that God doesn't want you to be named. And we need to not let division form among us. Understand, I'm I'm not talking about compromising what we believe. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about compromising our standards of holiness and our obedience to the word. I'm talking about letting our cultural, that wilderness line of thinking seep into the body of Christ. We need to be wiser than that. There's no room for division amongst the body. We need each other because we're valuable. We need each other to be together and unified. And the last key to staying together this morning is that we must fight distractions. Hebrews 10 and 25 says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We know this verse, as many uh, as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There was ever a time where distractions abound, we're living in it right now. The definition of distraction is that which distracts or divides the attention or prevents us from concentrating In order to stay together, we can't be distracted. That means we must be focused and with our eyes on the prize. It also means in order to stay together, we have to be together. How can you call yourself together if you're separated from one another, distance-wise, right? We need to fight any distraction that will keep us from being faithful to church. Amen? Amen? Please stand with me this morning as I close. Can you imagine being any of the young Hebrew men that were now in captivity in Babylon? It must have been distracting to find themselves not only in this new place, but now they're amongst the richest of the rich. They're in the palace, able to eat whatever the king ate, able to learn the highest education that they could ever learn in this new nation. They were selected out of all the other able-bodied young men from their homeland. They got 
honestly, they got, if you look at it a certain way, they got the choice of a lifetime. They were surrounded by all they could ever want. And it was all a huge distraction. It's really what it was. Many of you know the story. But the decision made by Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to stay together ultimately paid huge dividends and later would go on to save their nation of Israel. Daniel would go on to be thrown into a lion's den when he refused to give up Jehovah. His relationship with God was more important than his relationship to the king, which that was what the king's plan was, right? To claim them, tame them, name them, ultimately so they could be connected to him and serve him. But Daniel had made it a point in his heart that his relationship with God was more important than his relationship to the king. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would stand together, unwilling to bow down to any other god. Their unwillingness to compromise their faith saw them thrown into the fiery furnace. But what was their result of staying together? What was their result? In Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, it says, The king now is looking in the fire, and he answered and says, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. When we stand together, body of Christ, we don't stand alone. When we stand together for him, God also stands with us. Just like these young Hebrew men stood together, we got to stay together. When it's in a wilderness, when it's in a world like we're living in, the easiest way to thrive is to stay together. Would you pray in closing with me this morning? Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without really knowing the exact path it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. So be sure to subscribe and watch us on Facebook Live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And also visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. So I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait on you, Jesus.